Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. NSL Double Talk featuring Eric Schmidt and Jared Cohen. Their topic today is the economy, democracy, and disinformation in the era of COVID and beyond. Eric is the former CEO and chairman of Google. Under his leadership, Google dramatically scaled its infrastructure and diversified its product offerings while maintaining a strong culture of innovation. His philanthropic efforts through the Schmidt Family Foundation focus on climate change and education. And he is the founder of Schmidt Futures, which helps exceptional people do more for others by applying science and technology thoughtfully and working together across fields. Eric is the co-author of The New Digital Age, How Google Works, and Trillion Dollar Coach, the leadership playbook of Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell. Eric is also a Gulfstream pilot. Jared is the founder of CEO and Jigsaw, an independent unit at Google focused on building technology to address global security challenges and an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Jared has served as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and is a close advisor to both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. He is the New York Times bestselling author of five books, and his writing has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, the LA Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. He has been named to Time's 100 Most Influential People, Foreign Policy's Top 100 Global Thinkers, and Vanity Fair's New Establishment. Jared serves on a multitude of advisory boards and is a graduate of Stanford and a Rhodes Scholar. And of course, he speaks fluent Swahili. We are so excited to welcome Eric and Jared to NSL Double Talk. So Eric, if you think about the conversations that you and I have had over the course of the last 10 years about the international system, we've talked a lot about what's going to win out open systems versus closed systems. And we've seen a lot of fluctuation over the years in terms of advantages and disadvantages of both. The, the thing that is new is every democracy in the world is going to have to opt into civil liberties that mimic some of the tendencies of autocratic systems. It's not obvious to me that after a year plus of doing that and all the exploitation that comes with it, that democracy isn't going to have some significant repercussions that come with this. Do you have an opinion about, you know, how open societies continue to thrive and expand given those conditions for the next year? Well, in the short term, I think it's pretty clear that democracy is going to suffer. How do you run a traditional political campaign in the middle of a pandemic? You can't do the sort of beat and greed and the dinners and so forth and so on, certainly not with the same approach. But to me, the more interesting question is, this will end after an awful lot of terrible pain for an awful lot of people who are suffering. But it does end. It ends in a year or two. And then how will things be different? I think people will think that this is the beginning of a new epoch, that in fact the framing that all of us in the elites had of increasing globalization, increasing sort of citizens of the world, common values, common approaches, was in fact a chimera. And that what will happen now is that the resurgence of nationalism will drive more national identity, more national solutions, and more variation. 
And the consequence of this, because so many technology solutions need large-scale solutions, is you'll see unusual pairings. So you argued a long time ago in our book that certain countries would operate above their weight. So if you think about it, will Germany need to partner with another little country in order to advance in hardware and software together because they can't do it on their own? We don't really know. In other words, Europe as an integrated unit is clearly not going to work. The United States is devolving into state by state. These national identities are getting stronger and the globalization is getting weaker for all of the reasons that we know. Yeah, I think there's, and there's a few things that I'd add to that. So if you look at the political platforms that a lot of parties have in Europe, you, you basically have these right-leaning platforms that have been, you know, about closed borders and keeping foreigners out, and they've had a pretty hard line on migration issues. All of a sudden, the Green parties have had to subscribe to platforms that they had previously admonished. So I do think that the political landscape is not going to be as binary as it was before. But the other thing that I would observe we did an experiment after World War II that if we built these multilateral institutions and organized the democratic world by geography, that smaller states and bigger states would find greater efficiency by leaning on these multilateral liberal institutions. If we look at everything that's happened with COVID-19, it's provided a life and death stress test to that. And I think it's clear that democratic countries from large ones to small ones are looking inward as opposed to these multilateral bodies. And so the natural conclusion you come to is, to put it in terms, Eric, that, that you think of very often as a business person, maybe the democratic world should have gotten a reorg a long time ago. It seems crazy to me that post-Cold War and post-hybridization of the international system and all the technological changes that we've seen, for us to still have a democratic world that's organized in geographic terms. I think what we're seeing is, is tremendous amounts of inefficiency that have come with that. And we're having a hard time organizing around capabilities like, you know, science and technology that are absolutely necessary for meeting the challenges of COVID-19. And our institutions aren't set up to do that multilaterally. So another thing that I'm worried about, which I don't think people have quite figured out, is that Asia is going to emerge much stronger out of this problem. If you look at Asian recovery, it's already underway. The brutality with which the Asians dealt with this, with you know, quarantining people for 30 and 40 days, managed to reduce the r naught to a very low number very quickly. Here in the United States, as we speak, the r naught is roughly 1, 1, 1.1, 1.2, which means that you're busy infecting on average one other person. That sounds really good, but now we're about to re relax our restrictions. So the numbers don't get better unless we do something pretty, pretty direct. So while we're dillying and dallying around how do we open, how do we do this right, how do we respect people's privacy, the Asian juggernaut continues. And because China in particular is a manufacturing place, whereas we are more of a service place, the services will recover more slowly. So the combination of that could also change the balance of power. We've always been worried about China as an ascendant power, and now we see sort of the fight of the two systems. I've always thought that for the rest of our lives, the battle of ideology and ideas and appropriate approaches and the way people treat people and the way you do globalization between China and the United States will be the defining battle. They're big, they're super smart, they have a lot of money, and they're relatively well-managed compared to the mission that they have set out for themselves. We have a challenger. 
And a lot will depend on whether America unifies after this horrific crisis to go forward or whether the petty squabbling, the fights between the states and the White House and so forth make it worse, not better. So I think that's really interesting. I would maybe even add one additional point, which is if you look at what China is doing with their gift diplomacy, right, they're showing up in every corner of the world, by the way, including the United States with N95 masks, ventilators, and so forth. When we basically framed what China was offering the world versus what the U.S. was offering, it has sort of in recent memory been framed in terms of, do you want an open system or do you want a closed system? And there were limits to how far China could reach into the democratic world based on that particular framing. They could basically get as far as Hungary and to some extent Poland and countries like that, but they couldn't go deep into the more Jeffersonian parts of the democratic world. But the thing to me that's going to change dramatically over the course of the next year, we already see the Chinese reframing the choice, not in terms of open system or a closed system, but in terms of an efficient system versus an inefficient system. So what does it look like when all of this is done, when the Chinese basically are able to tell a story of efficiency um, juxtaposed against the world that has responded in a way that pales in comparison? Well, I think you stated their position, but you haven't stated ours. So our position is pretty straightforward. America is sort of confusing place, but when we get our act together, we have enormous power, enormous creativity. That is the genius of America. So you could imagine a response to all of this where just as in 1940, we became an arsenal of democracy, that somehow we invented the solutions that democracies could use that would cause people to really be able to strengthen their democracies and not weaken them in the face of this China onslaught. My short-term concern has to do with 5G. If you look at what China is doing, they're guaranteeing financing. The products from Huawei and ZTE uh, are less expensive than their foreign counterparts. All of these make it extremely difficult, in my opinion, for us to keep our momentum in terms of 5G. And should the Chinese 5G dominate, which I think is the most likely scenario, then we've got a problem because it will come with their rules around censorship and around intervention from the government. Well, historically, the battle, global platform battle, has been around technology platforms. And America has done a fantastic job of having the Intel architecture, the Microsoft architecture, the IBM architecture before that, the PC architecture, the web architecture, HTML, even things like Facebook and Instagram have become global standards. The 5G platform, the one from Huawei, is the one that got away from us. It's the one that's ahead of us. And it's important that we have a competitive response, which I don't see us having a strong enough one right now, in order to buttress that. So just to paint the negative picture, should the primary communication mechanism for 5G globally be Huawei, right, and the appropriate and the necessary connections to the Chinese, that gives them an enormous signals intelligence network to look around the world. It gives them an enormous way to shape conversations. And at least for the people who are on our podcast, all of us live essentially in an information space. I don't want the Chinese manipulating that information space. I want it to be open and democratic and free and not censored and not limited in any way. I care a lot about that freedom. And I worry that the average country doesn't really have a good choice except for go with 5G. We need an answer to 5G, but the principle is more important. 
which is that for everything that involves the information space and how democracies work, we need a good answer. In the current crisis, for example, all of the tech companies are busy censoring, limiting whatever term they use, completely evil misinformation about COVID. You know, you can't get it, it won't kill you, you know, that kind of stuff. They are aggressively pursuing uh, people who are deliberately misinforming people to the detriment of their health. So that's a good thing, in my view. How much more should they do about deliberate misinformation? Given that we're going to spend all of our lives online, especially more so after the pandemic, I want some semblance that I'm not being manipulated by a foreign power. I just do. I don't want people misinforming me for their own gain. I want to have my choices and my opinions. We look at what's happened today, and I think part of the problem, if I look at disinformation, to me the sort of macro-level problem is you know, the virtue of an open society is supposed to be the free flow of information. And the way that we've thought about vulnerabilities of closed societies is the free flow of information. And it seems to me that right now, these sort of centralized, top-down autocratic systems are having an easier time dealing with the challenges of being closed than open societies are navigating the complexities of being open. And I think that what's happened with disinformation is not unlike what's happened with 5G in some respects, which is these have become these sort of massive umbrella terms for more than we can possibly chew off. So disinformation is everything from fake news, meaning fabricated sites, to out-of-contact images, to distorted videos, to manipulated videos, to social chatbot automation. And so in some respects, we're so overwhelmed by the problem of disinformation that we're having a hard time dealing with it. The other thing is, I think one of the challenges we're facing both with disinformation and 5G is just the reality of a multi-dimensional world means that a significant amount of the technological capability that exists for understanding and dealing with this problem exists outside of government. You know, the asymmetric advantage that an autocratic system has is it's all under one umbrella. There's no distinction between the public sector and the private sector. So they're able to do the sort of command and control, whereas we have to figure out in this much more chaotic hybrid world how to figure out the best mechanisms for leveraging this capacity that exists outside of government without crippling the fundamental principles of what it means to be a democratic society. I agree with all of that. I think that it's going to get worse, however. And the reason is that artificial intelligence, broadly available, will allow much more sophisticated attacks on the information space. I say that in a negative context. There are many, many positive aspects to AI. So, for example, healthcare uh, will become much better. Uh, We'll know much more information to help us in science. But in the area of competition among countries, it's perfectly reasonable that there will be AI-based systems that will deliberately try to do misinformation in all sorts of subtle ways. So will we get to the point where we will only trust things that are written and operating in the United States? Because we can't even trust our partners because they have their own agendas. I don't really know. But the, the value of misinforming for your own gain, we have discovered is pretty high. And furthermore, people are busy. They don't necessarily understand all the details. They hear a snippet. We also know from your research and the research of others that people will tend to pass on alarmist or false information at a rate up to seven times more than normal information. So the people that I know say, well, you know, if I could just explain it and never read it, nobody reads that stuff. But if I say, did you know that somebody was shot around the corner and they were under a rock and so forth, all of which is false, it would get a lot of pickup. 
So how worried are you about new types of disinformation, right? So, so you talked about your concerns about the application of machine learning to be able to do this at scale. I completely appreciate that and agree with it, right? Because it's just going to make it, the, the capabilities are going to be easier to pull off the shelf. Most of the disinformation that we've seen to date has been in the context of meddling in elections, so to try to achieve political influence or to exacerbate social, ethnic, sectarian, racial tensions in a society. We haven't really seen the deployment by a state of economic disinformation at scale. And we now find ourselves in a situation where, you know, the world is already in the midst of a major economic crisis. You have every single country shutting down parts of their economy or the whole economy at the same time. It just seems like we're likely to see a whole new chapter of this that gets into the economic sphere. Do you, do you think that's outlandish or do you think that's something we should be worried about? I think it's certainly possible. Let me start by saying that what we're going through now is a good reminder of our shared humanity. This is the first time, I think, in history since farming was invented, where everyone around the world at exactly the same time had exactly the same problem, and they were vulnerable to an external threat that was common to all humans. You would hope that as a result, people would collectively and collaboratively work as closely as possible, put aside disagreements, and work together not only to fight the disease, but also to rebuild. That doesn't seem to be happening. And to me, that's a concern. It's a great concern because it shows you that our programming is still fundamentally tribal. And it seems to me that AI systems which shape and manipulate information could exacerbate that. Let's say that in the future there is a toy which is a learning toy, and this learning toy is built in China. And it's really smart, and it's a great friend of my kid, and my kid is growing up and thinks it's his best friend, and it's teaching it English and so forth. But for purposes of argument, let's say that this learning toy had a secret prejudice and that it would slowly tip the child's perception of the world to involve a prejudice, for example, in favor of, uh, using this example which I'm just making up, Chinese and against one of Chinese enemies. Well, how do we feel about that? you'd say that's terrible but how would we detect it so my point is that if you think of humans as learning machines operating in an information space the ability to shape that information space so that your reality is different is a very big deal when i was a boy the re information space that i lived in was television and everyone was concerned that television was going to rot all the children but in fact the television was highly regulated and relatively standardized but now we're not doing that anymore I think what you're getting at is a sort of larger question of how do we move away from this tribalism to collective action. And if you look at the trends, as you point out, everything is suggesting that despite the fact that every country in the world is going through the exact same thing, it's not spurring the kind of collective action you would assume. And there's a part of me that wonders, is there an intermediary step between total tribalism and total global collective action? And you and I have talked about this idea of trust zones that you have, it strikes me that there's a, a huge opportunity to innovate in multilateralism right now, which is all you need is a handful of countries that want to go about some of this the right way. And you could imagine in this context, loose confederations of trust between those countries to say, you know, like, let's take the tracking and tracing problem that every country is looking at. You could imagine, you know, four or five countries banding together saying, you know, we have shared norms in how we want to think about this. We're going to work on it, just our five countries. 
Um, we're going to set up an oversight board. We're going to agree on sort of sunset terms and so forth. Do you, I mean, do you think that after some period of time of countries looking inward, we're going to start to see innovation in how different countries work together, or do you think we're just going to continue down this path? Well, I'm sure we'll do some. And uh, we see some already in the United States in that the eastern states and the western states, a number of them have banded together to try to normalize their reopening, which makes perfect sense because of the, the closeness of the states and there's learning in that conversation. So if you think about it from the standpoint of America as a whole, the right thing to do is to pick a set of partners and say, we're going to do everything we can to normalize the technology, access, and trade between those countries because it's beneficial to everybody and we learn from each other and so forth. And you would pick your initial allies. And because we're in a world that's primarily nationalistic, you'd have to do this bilaterally. You'd have to say the United States and Canada, the United States and Mexico, the United States and Britain, the United States and you know Germany or however you would do it. We don't see that right now. But it's the logical next step since we won't go back to open globalization, right, the supply chains, the fear, the, the, all of these things have been shut down. And so, for example, if you go to Hong Kong today from anywhere, you get quarantined for 14 days. Well, that seems highly inefficient and highly uninteresting to the Hong Kong economy. So perhaps at some point they'll say, well, maybe from these countries we won't have to do 14 days. So that's an example of the mechanism. And you'll see that. To me, the question is, what's the intellectual framing of this? Is this fundamentally me, myself, and I, I'm trying to get through this, or is this we, all of us, together? And we, all of us, together is always stronger. There's this whole old saying that if you want to travel a long way, do it through a village, do it with a lot of people. I mean, there's all sorts of models here of how humans have solved this problem. Yeah, I tend to think that there's some optimism at the end of the tunnel here. I think we're being provocative and overly pessimistic, and I think that we have to think of this thing more in terms of phases. I think that if we're in the sort of pre-apex stage and the vaccine is somewhere between 18 to 24 months from now, there's going to be a number of different phases. I think it's clear from phase one that you are seeing this kind of retreat to tribalism between you know, where states are going it alone. Um, but I think as this sort of spikes and recedes and spikes and recedes, I think it's going to be very clear that what happens in one country impacts another country. So I've already talked to a number of leaders from countries that, that have seen the curve flatten, and their biggest concern is that in places where COVID-19 is spiking, people are going to flock to their country for safety. And already that has opened up their aperture to think beyond their own borders. You know, if you look at the developing world, right, you know, right now we're all neglecting the developing world. The developing world, by all accounts, is going to get hit extremely hard. And you know, if the developing world gets hit extremely hard, it's going to impact the developed world in an extraordinary way. So I think that this thing will be much more iterative. And I'm optimistic that after this initial stage of looking inward, we're going to have no choice but to look at this more multilaterally and more collectively. I think you're too optimistic. Usually you're the optimistic one. I think you're being too optimistic. I think what we're seeing is a return to nationalism. And in defense of nationalism, pretty much if you look at history, all of the great achievements have occurred in one nation, right? And globalization has been from a nationalistic perspective. You know, it's what I need from you. There's another scenario to think about, uh, which is also distressing. It is at some point people will realize that their governments didn't keep them safe. 
And how will that change people's faith in government, faith in their leaders, faith in the democratic process and so forth? Again, I'm not in any way endorsing China, but from the standpoint of the disease, they appear to have got the country through it faster than anybody else. Now, they also are responsible for keeping the wet markets open. And so one possible attack on the Chinese government is to say, you're insane to allow these wet markets continue because they will be the source of the next epidemic if they were the source of the last five. And these things, the, the economic and physical damage, life damage, moral damage to society is enormous. How much has the American economy been hurt? Trillions of dollars. Uh, trillions of dollars is an awful lot of money to lose that quickly. And everything is shut down, as we know. It's time for us to come back, not only with a growth plan for ourselves and a strong resumption of our democracy and try to export our best values, but it's also important for us to come back with some pressure on China and others to stop doing some of the things that could repeat this. Another thing that's going to happen in our country and in others, I suspect, is that there will be concern about the lack of resilience in the supply chains. And so you're going to see more insurance, if you will. There'll be more inventory held in the United States. People won't be quite as supply chain integrated. They might be, have a little bit more buffer based on what they've been through. In the same sense that the companies that are going near bankruptcy may have learned a lesson if they don't go bankrupt to keep just a little bit more cash and take on a little bit less debt. Debt is fine as long as you can pay for it. I'm extremely concerned that in the next three months or so, we're going to see bankruptcy failures that wipe out that equity. And that equity is not rediscoverable. If you can keep it alive, it can restore. But if it really does go bankrupt and you really do lose the firm, you have really lost something important. Right. And you think about the profound impact this has on the whole debate about income inequality as well. Not to pile on to your pessimism, particularly after my attempt to inject some optimism, but the other thing that I think we have to be honest about, you raise a very fair point, which is governments are going to be evaluated by how well they protected their citizens. And most incumbent governments will fail that test. And some portion of those countries will have the luxury of having the system intact, but the government will flip to the opposition party. But if you look at most countries in the world, most countries in the world have pretty fragile governments. So we forget because we're so obsessed with this dichotomy between saving lives due to a public health crisis and saving the economy. We forget that before all this, if you were talking about geopolitics, you were talking about terrorism, you were talking about war, if you were talking about nonproliferation, rogue states, civil wars. I mean, we've sort of forgotten how messy a significant portion of the world is. I think the consequence for a number of states around the world that fail to keep their citizens safe is total government collapse. And the thing that in many respects poses the greatest threat to the international system is state fragility, because when you have state fragility, you have terrorism, criminality, and other forms of mischief thriving that can metastasize well beyond those borders. And so what happens when we see more Syria-type context? What happens to all the countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Central Asia that even during peacetime had a hard time staying in control. So I'm deeply concerned and worried about the impact that this is going to have on state fragility. You talk to, for instance, the Iraqis, and you know they've got a political crisis, they have an economic crisis, they have a security crisis. And even though Iran is one of the country's hardest hit right next door, in their sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of problems that they need to solve, COVID-19 is pretty low down the list. So you introduce something 
this significant into a country that volatile, and it just doesn't have the ability to withstand it. So if you look at the history in World War One, the people fighting the war, including our president, did not want to stop the transport ships that were carrying the disease. So they made a deliberate decision to essentially fight the war for freedom against the Germans, and in return, they accepted casualties that ultimately were greater than the number of casualties in the American side of the war. So that's an example of how these trade-offs are made. I have enormous concern and enormous sympathy for the countries where you have essentially day labor, where you work to eat, and their choice is going to be, do I violate the ban on assembly or do I starve to death? And that's an impossible choice to give any human being. So there's going to be some kind of rough compromise on that point and rough in the sense of just a horrific set of choices. And we want to be both sympathetic for how difficult this is going to be, but we also want to do everything we can to simultaneously reduce the number of deaths and solve the economic program so that people can continue to eat and live and be okay during the pandemic. The pandemic does eventually end. I have been funding a fair amount of research in how to help accelerate antivirals and various other things involving the vaccine, but it's all maddeningly taking much longer than the time we have because of the nature of a pandemic with its doubling rate so quick, even if it's doubling every seven to 10 days, it's still doubling. And of course, in the midst of all of this, we're supposed to have a presidential election. And I think what's so fascinating about the current political context is we went from being all consumed with and obsessed with the presidential election to very few people really spending much time thinking about it. And it's hard to imagine people giving the presidential election very much thought until we get pretty close to it in the fall. And in, at least in my lifetime, I've never seen politics recede this quickly in the face of something that, that, that's, that, that's kind of replaced it in sucking up all the oxygen. Well, this is a real national emergency. And let's do remember, we're in a national emergency and we need to behave appropriately. In 1918, in November, they had an election and the government at the time made the ill-fated decision to allow five days of campaigning, which at the time was much more in person because, of course, television hadn't been invented yet. And that is seen as one of the major contributors for a secondary reinfection rate that occurred in January, which was horrific where many more people died than in the first round, which was roughly in October of 1918. You can study the charts to see the peaks that I'm describing. And indeed, the second cycle was the worst of the three cycles that they went through. So it's crucial that we not make that mistake here in November 2020. And my guess is that you'll see a great deal of limitations on campaigning, which will be difficult for Biden because he doesn't have an awful lot of attention by comparison to the president. But more importantly, difficult for voters who will say, why take the risk? We need solutions that are pro-democratic for a situation where participation in our democracy may be suppressed by fear of this pandemic. It's clear to me that the virus will not be eliminated by November, and we'll see. Yeah, I mean, to me, when I look at this election, I mean, first of all, there's an interesting, you know, historic frame of reference for this. During the Spanish influenza pandemic, historians are pretty confident that when Woodrow Wilson went to Paris in April of that year that he contracted Spanish influenza or at least something that looked like it. And we forget that at the height of Spanish influenza, Wilson suffered a horrific stroke that left him pretty much incapacitated. What followed Spanish influenza was an era of 
enormous xenophobia in the country, which may or may not have been related to Spanish influenza. Remember, we just had also come out of World War I. But the historic frame of reference of the 1920 election is quite interesting. When I look at this presidential election in the fall, there's a few things that I think we can be sure of. One, polling is going to matter much less because, as you say, the virus is still going to be there. So it's going to be impossible to predict with any kind of accuracy which demographics will vote where and how because so much of this is going to be influenced by behavior. And I think we can also conclude that not all the states are going to be as electorally prepared to have an election where you have an outbreak. And even if you have mail-in, it's going to be implemented in different and inconsistent ways across the country. So my prediction on the election is I think it looks like some combination of 1876, the Iowa caucus, and Bush v. Gore. You know, in 1876, you had irregularities in three states that led to sort of extra constitutional process to work out a deal between the Democrats and the Republicans to resolve those disputes and figure out who won the election. I say the Iowa caucus because that gives you a sense of how the incumbent will react and how the populace will react to irregularities in Bush v. Gore because in modern times that's how irregularities were settled. So I think there's a high likelihood that you have confusion after the November election, irregularities in states, and it gets resolved by the courts. And the political climate today is very different than the political climate in 2000. How long do you think this xenophobic period lasted after 1918? Well, what's interesting about the xenophobic period after 1918 is we forget that in the U.S. there's a long 20th century and even late 19th century history of xenophobia against the Chinese. You know, there were multiple pieces of legislation around Chinese exclusion that went through Congress. The period of anti-Chinese sentiments, it basically goes from the 1880s well through the 1920s. So this can last a particularly long period of time. I think that it's very different in this context because if you look at this particular virus, when it settles and people are less worried about their day-to-day, everyone's going to look for an opportunity to blame someone. You know, history shows that when there's a crisis imposed on a population, everyone looks for blame. And it's clear that there's going to be attempts from both China and the United States to allocate blame in each other's direction. I think a lot of the answer to your question, Eric, is going to rest on who wins the blame game in the court of public opinion. Jerry, we work together for a long time, and you know me to always be optimistic. I am pessimistic in the short term because I think that we're better than what we've been going through now. I think our country is better than what we've been doing. We can manage this better than we have. I will tell you, however, that I am remain very optimistic about the future of democracy and of our country. It was just six months ago where everything seemed to be going well. And so when we get the formula, we're the best place in the world. People flock to our country. They want to build businesses. They want to innovate. They want to address these challenges. I don't know why our response has been so difficult to understand and so sort of irrational from my perspective, but I know that it's hurt people, and I want us to get through this as fast as we can to get back to our growth and our confidence and the sort of great things that are our America today. I mean, look, Eric, you're one of my dearest friends in the world, and I think it's times like this that friendships that are built around an intellectual collaboration really matter. 
Right. I mean, I think that, you know, here we are talking to this wonderful audience together, but you and I are talking every single day about topics as broad as how do we contain the virus to how do we save democracy and everything in between. Uh, you know, since I was talking to my grandfather, who's 95 years old and served in World War II, and I think we forget that the sort of aftermath of these major crises, it lasts a long time. And he was telling me that 20 years after World War II, when you'd meet somebody, they'd want to know what you were up to during the war. Even 20 years later, they were still talking about it. That's very interesting. Right. Think about it. If this thing lasts a year, two years, and even then it's not going to abruptly go back to normal, I fully expect 20 years from now, when I meet somebody new or I'm you know, thinking about a job, people are going to want to know, what were you up to during COVID-19? It's like 9-11. People still say, what was 9-11 like? And I remember it vividly. And I wonder, maybe we will all remember this 20 years from now incredibly vividly, how it felt. But I think it's even more profound than 9-11. So 9-11, we all felt it and we all experienced it, but most of us were kind of voyeurs for the 9-11 experience. This impacts every single one of our lives in ways that we can really feel. And every single one of us has agency, even if it's really difficult, over the actions that we take. So you, know, you look at the range of very difficult situations that people find themselves in, for the rest of our lives, we're going to be talking about what we did and didn't do during COVID-19. And that's not just with regards to our careers and our jobs and our intellectual pursuits. It's how we related to our children and how we related to our friends and how we thought about the world and what matters. You have the entire world collectively going through a psychologically reflective moment. And from the most emotional people to the least emotional people, I think everybody is going to be expected to have an opinion about what COVID-19 meant for them. Can you imagine 10 years from now, Eric, I introduce you to some friends of mine that you haven't met and you say to them, you know, how did COVID-19 impact you? And they'd say, I have no opinion about it. That's impossible. Everyone's going to have an opinion about how this impacts them. Everyone's going to have an opinion about how this changes their lives. And most people who are in a position to have influence and are in a position to play a part in this are going to want to have a good answer to the question, what did you do to be a productive member of society during this time? Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. Um, thanks, everybody. And um, Thank you, yeah. Eric. Thank you, Jerry. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.